0: So uh, the passage that was just read a moment ago from Romans chapter 1 is uh, the key passage for the book of Romans. And as we've been studying through Romans on Sunday mornings, uh, we're going to see how Paul uses the idea that he just discussed in that passage um, to bring about and facilitate the unity of the church that has been going through some struggles. One of the things that that can happen as you read Romans— and especially some of the pet sections that we're going to be talking about this morning is there you can get bogged down in some of the details. There is a tremendous amount of depth and there's, there's some dense paragraphs where just about every phrase requires interpretation and every interpretation you give is somewhat controversial. And there's just scores and scores of literature and books written on how to properly understand each phrase and each word like faithfulness or the righteousness of God or wrath or, or all of these different passages. And, uh, and when that happens, you can finish a whole class or finish a sermon, and still not know what the actual main idea is because you've you've looked at all of the trees and missed the forest. Um, and so I think one of the one of the the difficulties with Romans is not to get bogged down, but to maybe zoom out a little bit and see if we could understand what what is Paul talking about and how is it that this message is not just deep and profound and theological, but is actually practical and, I believe, very, very beautiful. In Romans, he is trying to demonstrate that God's plan for humanity has always been to unite all mankind together into one family the distinctions that they have in their minds are primarily Jew and Gentile, uh, because it was the Israelites, it was the Jewish people through whom God was going to work this plan to bring about unity under one Lord and one king, that's Jesus himself, and he's a Jewish king. And this is witnessed in the Jewish scriptures. So, So Judaism is absolutely central to understanding what the book of Romans is all about. But what has happened with Judaism is there are many who because it's their scriptures and because it's their Messiah and because God is their covenant God, they tended to have an exclusive view towards outsiders. And when they looked at outsiders, they saw paganism, which was there. They saw idolatry. They saw sexual immorality. They saw all kinds of wickedness. And they thought if we allow that in here, it will mess up and, and it will uh, bring impurity into the glorious thing God has given us. And that facilitated this type of barrier, this wall between them and others. And as they lost their, uh, their, the power. of their nation. You know, they, they used to be ruled by David. Now they're ruled by Gentiles. I mean, they've been ruled by Gentiles since Babylon, whether it's been Babylon or whether it's been Greece or whether it's been Rome. Like, throughout their history, Gentiles now rule them and Gentiles are in their lands. So what is it that they can do to keep themselves safe, secure, and pure from the paganism of Gentiles without everything becoming all contaminated? Well, It's not based on land, and it's not really based on their king anymore, but there are certain things within Torah. There are certain things within their law that help keep them set apart, things that they do that the Gentiles do not do. And those are the markers that help keep them secure as a people, things like circumcision. They do that and the Gentiles don't. So as long as they're faithful to that, they can remain separate. Um, Things like their food laws had a lot to do. Uh, Things like certain days that they observe and their celebrations and Passover and Yom Kippur, the temple and the priesthood. Those were things that they had. They were uniquely their own, and it separated them from the Gentiles. So that even though they might have these Gentile powers, overlords that ruled them, they might be dominated by Rome, they could still be their own people and still be pure and still be separate. But the problem is that God's plan was always for all humanity to be to be united into one family. And that's actually in the Torah also. And so they, they set aside one part of Torah for another side. And Paul is now of the mindset that through the Messiah, the time has come to bring about this unity. So Paul spends his time going to Gentiles and bringing them into the church. But as soon as you do that, you have culture clashing. You have Gentile way of life and Jewish way of life, which are quite distinct in many ways being forced together into one and it creates conflict. And so the whole book of Romans is trying to to bring about the idea that the gospel, the good news that Jesus has become king, this gospel declaration is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. And that is for the Jew first because it came from them, but also now for the Gentiles as well. And because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed All right, so that's the passage that we just had read a moment ago. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed from his faithfulness to our faith. And uh, as it is written, the righteous one shall live by faith. And so Paul is going to be trying to demonstrate that reality throughout this whole book. And one of the ways that he has done it, is by laying out the need that everybody has for the gospel. And he starts off with some of those assumptions and and those truths that we've already mentioned. Like, the Gentile people did not live properly according to Torah. Like, they were idolatrous. They traded the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Uh, they, they, in seeking to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of God uh, for a corruptible image. Like, like they, they made all of these trades so that they didn't worship the true God. They worshiped their own gods. And whenever you do that then you are kind of the one who's in charge of your God. And that means you're the one who's in charge of how you live. And it led to all kinds of immorality. Romans 1 just lists sin after sin after sin that the Gentiles have engaged in. And that's the type of stuff that the Jews want to avoid. All of that stuff is against their law. And all of that stuff is what would destroy them as a people. They wouldn't be a unique people if they acted like that. And so they want to be separate. But Paul in chapter 2 says... But wait a minute here guys, you know all those sins that I just mentioned, yeah, you might associate those with the Gentiles, but you guys have done all of the same things too. That's it. Like you can open up, you can open up just to the book of Judges, and you can find virtually everything he said right there in that book. You can find that throughout Israel, throughout their whole history. You can find that throughout Israel, even in their own lives now. It's like Israel hasn't uh, become immune to sin. Sin isn't just a Gentile problem. It's your problem too. And so, because of that, you have been united together in sin and in need for something greater. And so remaining exclusive isn't going to help anything. All that's going to do is mean there's a group of sinners here who doesn't like the group of sinners here. Like that doesn't solve your problem. And so what Paul is saying is there's gotta be something that could actually solve this problem of sin and solve these problems that have separated you and unite together into one family. And that solution throughout the book of Romans is Jesus himself. Jesus' faithful death on the cross for all mankind Jew and Gentile alike, is the means by which God has united people together. That is important. It's important to know that it is rooted in the faithfulness and in the obedient sacrifice of Jesus rather than something that Jews could hold on to for themselves or that Gentiles could hold on to for themselves. For example, if unity were going to be based on the law, then who has the upper hand there? Well, the Jews do because it's their law. So if Paul is to say the righteousness of God is revealed because of the law or through the law, then he's just choosing a side and creating a further division. And so Paul has to be very clear. The law is great, and it's good, and it's wonderful. And Paul, wants, he absolutely wants to make this point clear. The gospel is not contrary to the law. They, they go hand in hand. The law has been pointing to this all along. Paul wants, he wants his Jewish audience to know. He's not saying, oh, get rid of the law, that doesn't matter anymore. He's saying, let's uphold the law and read it carefully, and when we do that, we'll find out that this is what the law has wanted from the beginning. And so there's a reason that I'm teaching this, and it's not because I'm against the law. The law is good and matters, and the law is essential to our faith, and, and the law is, is, is given from God, and if we should listen to it, it's good. But there are certain aspects that have been interpreted that would exclude Gentiles. And that's never what the law, that's not what the law wants us to do now. And so what we'll be talking about in the lesson this morning is how the law cannot be the means of justification. It has to be something that is greater and beyond that, that includes both Jew and Gentile alike. And that is what Paul says is the, the sacrificial faithful death of Jesus. That's the means of justification rather than Torah, or rather than the law, which would divide or separate you. So as he As he makes this point, this this pretty big point, um, a couple of problems emerge. So, for example, he'll talk about how Jews and Gentiles have all become equally sinful, and so they're united and there's no partiality with God. Think about that. There's no partiality with God. Read the Old Testament, and it kind of feels sometimes like God is partial to his people. It's like It feels like there's some partiality with God, but he will say throughout Romans, there is no distinction, and with God, there is no partiality. So, so what is the deal here? Like, does God prefer his people over everyone else or not? Didn't God make promises to Israel? Didn't he make promises specifically and uniquely to them that separated them from everyone else? Paul has just said, the law does not make you better than Gentiles because you failed to keep it. And he said, circumcision doesn't make you better than Gentiles because a person who's circumcised but then ignores the law is no better than the person who is not circumcised but actually from his heart does the law. Like the circumcision isn't what makes you better. What matters is whether or not your heart is circumcised, whether or not your heart has, been, has had uncleanness cut away from it so that you could be pure before God. And so, and so Paul has to answer his reader's question here. If circumcision isn't what makes us pure and the law doesn't give us uh, the, the uh, superiority over Gentiles, then what about all of those like promises that God made about us being his unique covenant people? How can he treat us just like the Gentiles? How can he treat Jews just like everyone else and still be just? Because didn't he make a covenant with us? And so one of the major questions Paul is answering is how is God just in allowing the Gentiles to be equal and co-heirs with the Jews Not on the basis of law or circumcision. How can God do that and still be a just and righteous God? One of the things I think sometimes confuses us as we read Romans is we cut through some of all that social baggage and all of that historical stuff, and we just assume Romans is the question how do I go to heaven when I die? And then we read it, and everything we, we read, we try to, to make it just like a simple statement answering that question. And that's not really the question that Paul is answering. I mean, it's, it's, it's there, you know, there, there's, it's going to be related to some of those things. But the question by and large is, how can God— turn the whole world into one united family through the gospel and maintain his just covenant promises to Israel, not discarding them and being unfaithful to them by the inclusion of the Gentiles. And what about all those Jews who didn't believe? Like, are they just excluded now? Are they So they're not part of the, the promise anymore? How does all of this work while God is still just? All right, so that, those are some of the big questions that Romans is going to be answering. And when we get to Romans chapter three, We'll see that Paul has laid out that there is no partiality or distinction in the mind of God between Jew and Gentile, for all are under sin. They have all, whether they had the law or didn't have the law, whether they had circumcision or didn't have circumcision, they've all been united under sin, and they all need a solution to that. And the law is not gonna be a great solution, because that would really only help one of them, and they failed to keep it anyway, so it's not even gonna help them. So, what solution can there be that would unite them together? So, Romans chapter 3 and verse 21 is where we start getting to the Paul's solution passages. Um, and in these passages, like I said, they're dense, and every word can be, needs to be interpreted, and every interpretation has controversy, and it's, it's, it's tough. Like, it really is some tough stuff right here. And so what I don't want to do is spend the entire time uh, dissecting each detail. What I'd like to do is try to understand, okay, what essentially is Paul's answer to this? How does it work? And the passage that, that uh, you'll see here in Romans 3, really 21 through 26, is a key passage in what in theological circles are called like atonement theories. You know, how, how does God atone for the sins of mankind through Jesus? And there are different theories that are put out there. And I think most of them have, have a measure of truth to them. Uh, there is uh, in Protestant circles what's called uh, penal substitutionary atonement. Basically, there's a legal penalty, and Christ is the substitute for our, penal, uh, for our penalty. So instead of us going to hell, He went to the cross. He took the punishment. That is, that is a dominant theory. Uh, that uh, that that I think it, it is. An important part of understanding the atonement. Uh, there is also Christus Victor, which is like the victory of Christ over the powers of darkness. The way that He atoned for our sin was He conquered and defeated through His death the powers of sin that held us captive. So it's the victory of Christ over sin and its grip on us. Uh, sin was a slave master, and Christ conquered sin uh, and was victorious through His death and resurrection, so that we can be freed as well. There are ransom theories uh, that you know that that the powers of darkness or Satan himself held us captive and held us in bondage to sin. And Jesus gave his life as a ransom so that we would be like a slave freed from that. There are moral influence theories that basically the, the, the meaning of the cross is for us to see the depth and the love and the sacrificial nature of God and so to embody that in our own life and morals and ethics and the way that we treat others and in the way that the church uh, acts in the world around us. So like, there's all kinds of ideas about what the cross means and how it atones for us and we're not really going to dive into any of those. What I'm hoping we'll do is that we'll see that Paul's solution regardless of the exact means by which the death of Jesus brings about our atonement and and the righteousness of God, is that the death of Jesus is the means of our atonement and our righteousness before God. Um, If you look at verse 21, he says, but now apart from the law, God's righteousness, and I think it's important to note that's not probably talking about like our righteousness that God wants us to have. That's talking specifically about the righteous God's righteousness, like the fact that he is just. He says, God's righteousness has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So it's apart from the law, meaning it's not on the basis of the law, but it is absolutely witnessed by the law. The law is where you can get some of this information. The law has been talking about this. Uh, the righteousness of God is revealed. It is manifest, not on the basis of law, but it was witnessed by the law. In verse 22, he says, even the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Uh, So this is, again, it's a controversial passage right here, but the idea of it, I think, is that the righteousness of God was made known because Jesus was faithful to God, and that made it available, in verse 22 it concludes, for all who are faithful. And so it goes from God's righteousness to Jesus being faithful in his life and death to our faithfulness. And that is how it is, you know, that's Romans 1.17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness. The faithfulness of Jesus is the foundation of our atonement, is the foundation of our means of justification, is the means of our salvation, and ultimately of our unity. And that is the end of verse 22 for all who believe, right? That's the same exact phrase that you have in Romans 1 16. It is the God's power of salvation to all who believe, Jew and Gentile. Uh, Like Paul is, is, this is restating that passage right here after he's discussed the problem of sin and now he's discussing how it is that the gospel accomplishes all of that. He says that it is uh, the righteousness of God is revealed through the faithfulness of Jesus to all, both Jew and Gentile alike, who believe, for there is no distinction. For all Jew and Gentile alike have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so the means by which we are saved is not my ability to keep law. It's not the fact that God gave a certain people the law. It's not any of the other thousand things that might, uh, we might want to base our unity upon. It is on the justice of God, the faithfulness of Jesus, and his sacrifice for us, which paid a ransom that freed us from the bonds of sin. In verse 25, it says, "...whom Christ displayed publicly as the propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness." Again, so so we're talking about the righteousness of God being revealed, being manifest, being demonstrated. This is all about how god you can see that God is still just, even though Jews and Gentiles have been united together equally. How? It was through the means of sacrifice of Jesus, which was for everybody. He says uh, in verse 25, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God— He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God is both just in allowing Jews and Gentiles to be, uh, to be united together into one family, and he's the justifier who makes that unity possible, and he does that through the sacrifice of Jesus rather than law, because law would not accomplish that unity, but the faithful death of Jesus would. So our hope is not found in, our, in the law. Our hope is found in the fact that Jesus himself was faithful to God and obedient to God and died so that he could ransom us and be the propitiation for our sins. The whole thing, if we zoom out now, and just the whole thing is this whole world is divided and, and unity is scarce and sin runs rampant. And if you're looking for something that can solve the problem of sin and bring about unity, it's found in Jesus. And Jesus is someone, though he was a Jew, he is someone who died for all people, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile alike. So that is the means by which God is just in uniting all people together, but he's also the justifier of those people so that they could become one, and it's because of Jesus. Now, if that's the case, then in what way is, am I superior to you or are you superior to me by means of our justification? In what way have I been elevated over you? I haven't been. It wasn't based on the fact that God gave the law to the Jews, so they're the better ones. It wasn't based on the fact that, well, the Gentiles did better even though they didn't have the law, so they're the better ones. It's not based on their performance, and it's not based on their possession of the law. It's based on the faithfulness of Jesus. So who's the superior one? Who can boast? Who can brag over the other one? Who can elevate themselves and look down on the other person? Neither of them can because it was Jesus's faithfulness. The only thing you can boast in is the faithfulness of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross for us. That's the only thing that gives you hope and gives me hope. And so after this, that's his conclusion. This whole thing has been building to verse 27 where that's his practical application of it. Like we've discussed the theological nitty gritty, but what does this actually mean? It means in verse 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? Of works? No, by a law of faith or faithfulness. And I'll say this I think he's probably talking about Jesus' faithfulness right there, too. You could potentially have the same problem if he's talking about our own faithfulness, as I could say, well, I'm more faithful than you, or I have a stronger measure of faith than you do. And you can, even with faith, you could still find means of of boasting. You could still find means of of saying that I'm better than you or whatever. But I think throughout this, and there are some translation things here that make it a little difficult to see. But I think throughout here, he's going to be talking a lot about the faith of Jesus being the means of our justification and his faithful obedience to God that we are then invited into. And so it's not even my faithfulness that is the basis of my salvation. It is the faithfulness of Jesus that is the basis of my salvation. But my response to that. Is obedient faithfulness. It is allegiance to Jesus, and that is something that whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, you give to him, and that is something that unites you together. So, when we, verse 28, For we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. So again, this isn't just the question of how do you go to heaven. This whole thing deals with Jews and Gentiles somehow being united together. And that's the reason he's talking about justification as he is. Because it was the, the death of Jesus is the only way you could get the Jews and Gentiles to be united together into one justified family. And that was not based on an aspect of blessing given to Jews or Gentiles or something like that. It's based on the death of Jesus who is for all. Since verse 30... Indeed, God who will justify the circumcised by faithfulness and the uncircumcised through faithfulness is one. There is one God who justifies Jew and Gentile, circumcised and uncircumcised alike. He's one God and thus is creating one family. And so what does that mean about the law? Verse 31. Does that mean that the law doesn't matter anymore? Does that mean that the law is now nullified or abolished and we don't do the law? Actually, no. Uh, Verse 31 says... Do we then nullify the law through faithfulness? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. We're going to hold up the law. We're going to uphold it. The law is a good thing. And so what Paul does in chapter 4 is he shows how his message of justification by faithfulness is absolutely the teaching of the law. And he does so by looking at a couple of figures, but we're going to focus primarily on Abraham. Abraham is someone who, in Genesis 15, he was justified by faith. Abraham, in Genesis 15, he left his father's home, he trusted God, and he was found just because of that. Even though he was a sinner, even though he had been a pagan and all these things, Abraham was made just by his faithfulness to God. Now, that happened in Genesis 15. You know what happened in Genesis 17? Abraham was circumcised. That is actually a really important timeline for the argument Paul's going to make. Because Paul sees Abraham. Who's Abraham? He's the father of the Jews, right? Well, if you read what Genesis says about Abraham, on the one hand, it says that he's the father of many nations. Because look at his kids. Like, he has Ishmael who uh, isn't, you know, doesn't become a, a Jew. You, you have the, Isaac is the one that the family comes through. But even after the death of Sarah, he marries again, and more nations come from him. So, like, Abraham's the father of a bunch of Gentile nations, but he's also the father of the Jewish nation. So he's the father of both. Okay, well, when was he justified? Was it by his obedience to Torah? No, that wasn't given yet. Was it by his circumcision? Actually, he was just without being circumcised, Because he was found just in Genesis 15, even though he wasn't circumcised for a couple chapters later. He was found just without the law because he was justified before Torah was given. But also he was just after his circumcision. So what does that mean about Abraham? It means that Abraham's justification came by faithfulness rather than law or circumcision. Because he was just on either side of both. So Gentiles who come from Abraham can say, hey, he's our father and he's the one who brings about just, or he's the one who is an example of justification because he was justified even without being circumcised. And Jews can look at him and say the same thing. So they can both find Abraham an example of the type of salvation that Paul is writing about. If you look at Romans chapter four in verse nine, for example, the blessing of, of being forgiven, of God not taking your sins into account. He says that blessing, is it for the circumcised or for, for the uncircumcised? And he says, uh, for we say Abraham was cred, uh, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of his faith, uh, which he had while uncircumcised. And then notice this phrase, verse 11. So that he might be the father of all who believe or all who are faithful without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of the circumcision to those who are not of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of their father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So I've said a lot of stuff about law, about circumcision. You can dig through the weeds and you can find a lot of things. But I think Paul is using Abraham as an example of someone who has experienced justification, both while circumcised and uncircumcised. That means Jews and Gentiles can both see him as an example of the type of salvation that Paul's talking about here. And that salvation is not found in being a literal descendant of Abraham. It's not found in circumcision. It's not found in works of law. It's found in something that is above and transcends those that is for all people, and that is the faithfulness and the death of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? Um, There's a lot more you could get into. I just skipped a whole bunch of verses. But what does that mean? That's kind of outside of our culture, isn't it? Like no one here is thinking, you know, let's get the uncircumcised people out of here. Like no one, no one has those. No one here is thinking, uh, you know, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's uphold, you know, the, the law of Moses and anyone who doesn't keep all 613 commands perfectly get them out of here. This isn't our debate, is it? Well, it kind of is. Maybe some of the characters have changed. Maybe some of the, the means of arguing has, has been uh, shifted a little bit. But the fact that all humanity can be united together into one family through the faithfulness and the death of Jesus is just as much true today as it ever has been or as ever was. And that is the absolute basis and means of our unity as a people. So if we're going to live life together, I think we need to remember that. I loved the words that Randy Winstead said when he came up here and he, he was talking about, uh, you know, politics, it's not unimportant. Politics matters. But, but when we elevate the kingdoms of this earth to an equal status or a superior status to the kingdom of heaven, then the debates that they create, we end up adopting to create those same types of divisions in the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is beyond that. It's greater than that. The foundation of our unity should not be circumcision. It shouldn't be works of law, but it also shouldn't be politics. It shouldn't be, okay, in order for us to be united as a people, you have to believe in the death of Jesus and vote the way that I do. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, right, in order to be united as a people, you have to give your faithfulness to Jesus Christ as Lord and live for him, and make sure that you have a similar uh, background, share the same hobbies, same cultural interests, same type of music. No, we hopefully we understand that it's something beyond that. You have to like the same worship songs. No, it's something beyond that. you have like there are a thousand things that might not be circumcision in our culture, but there are a thousand things you can put in its place that we will sometimes use as a means of separating the body of Christ, whether it's generation or culture or race or nationality or uh, political ideology or any of these things, don't add those to the faithful sacrifice of Jesus on the cross as essential for our unity as the people of God. Paul wants Jews and Gentiles who have all of those. It wasn't just circumcision. There were also certain days that some people wanted to observe and other people didn't. There were also certain foods that some people would eat and other people wouldn't eat. There were also just the cultural baggage of one person being, uh, having their whole history and identity rooted in like the Roman way of life and another person's whole history and identity being rooted in Judaism and saying that those things, while they might matter to you, they might be important parts of you, They are not the means by which you become one family in Christ. That's Jesus. And the more you add to Jesus, the farther you get from the gospel. Peter, creating two tables with Jews at one and Gentiles at the other, was walking away from the gospel by doing that. When we create two tables, we are walking away from the truth of the gospel. When we say we'll have a Gentile church here and a Jewish church here, you're walking away from the truth of the gospel. When we create different means of, of unity and we add more to it than Christ actually did, we are walking away from the truth of the gospel. Romans four and uh, three and four, it's dense, but it's profound. And I think it, it is essential for us, if we're going to be united with one another, to recognize that unity is not based on my performance on the gift of God's law to me, uh, my merit, my cultural baggage, my uh, interests, any of those types of things. It's based in the fact that Jesus was faithful and he loved every single one of you and he died for every single one of you so that every single one of you can have the opportunity to name him as Lord of your life, have your sins washed away in baptism and live for him from this point forward. Now, as Romans continues, there are questions that might have popped into your head about a few things that I just said. I think the book of Romans is gonna get to some of those as we continue through this study. But for now, the basis of our justification and unity is the death of Jesus. And we'll see some of the practical manifestations of that as we continue to read. But if there's anyone here this morning who would like to take advantage of the offer of the justice of God demonstrated through the death of Jesus Christ, that serves as a ransom to save you from your sins, that opportunity is yours. You can name Jesus as your Lord. You can have your sins washed away in baptism. You can change your life into conformity with his will. And you can be part of a family here who will try to help you every step of the way. If you have the need, please let it be known while we stand and as we sing.